Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I massively increased the spigot. You know, I just pumped dollars into my economy. And therefore, isn't the consequence of that would be that the price of a marginal dollar unit would fall. But the weird thing is that since you've been doing this, each marginal dollar that you produce is becoming more valuable. So your heart's not in it. I kind of reason that perhaps the central bank just were asking it to be really, really irresponsible. And these guys were not made to be irresponsible. Put me in charge or like Joe Rogan, you know, a caricature. It's a game of psychology. You know, if you can get in people's minds and make them think differently, you change history. Welcome back to The Breakdown with me, NLW. It's a daily podcast on macro, Bitcoin, and the big picture power shifts remaking our world. The Breakdown is sponsored by Crypto.com, Bitstamp, and Nexo.io, and produced and distributed by Coindesk. What's going on, guys? It is Tuesday, August 11th, and today we have an interview that I am so excited to share with you. Yesterday, I got to chat with hedge fund manager turned St. Bart's Villa manager Hugh Hendry about just a huge variety of topics in business, finance, philosophy, and beyond. There are some pretty surprising parts of that conversation, so I'm really excited for you guys to hear it. First, however, let's do the brief. First up on the brief, MicroStrategy's 250 million Bitcoin buy. So what happened? MicroStrategy is a NASDAQ-listed business intelligence platform that was founded in 1989 and is worth more than $1.2 billion currently. In July, the company told shareholders that they would be buying back $250 million in stock and investing the same amount in gold and Bitcoin over the next 12 months. The goal was for these alternative investments, as they called them, to protect a dollar-heavy balance sheet against inflation. The executive team behind MacroStrategy pointed out that there were so many factors pointing towards the possibility of inflation that they wanted to have a specific hedge. This is what they said about Bitcoin. We find the global acceptance, brand recognition, ecosystem vitality, network dominance, architectural resilience, technical utility, and community ethos of Bitcoin to be persuasive evidence of its superiority as an asset class for those seeking a long-term store of value. So why does this matter? On the one hand, this is just one company. On the other, it does kind of set an at-scale template for people or companies who wish to switch their savings behavior, quote-unquote, 
from cash to Bitcoin. And that's a powerful potential idea. In a world where the job of fiat currency is not to preserve value, but in fact to be a tool of monetary policy, which is a discussion that you'll see I have with Hugh later on, maybe part of the point of something like Bitcoin is to replace that capacity of cash to store value in a safe but very liquid way. Next up on the brief today, a Russian vaccine is coming to market. President Putin has said that Russia has registered the world's first COVID-19 vaccine, and in doing so, they used language hearkening back to the space race and the glorious launch of Sputnik in 1957. The problem, and of course there are problems, is that this vaccine has had accelerated clinical evaluations and shortened test trial times. A local association of multinational pharma companies have called it dangerous and said, This is a political decision by Putin so he can claim that Russia was the first in the race to develop a COVID-19 vaccine. I can't understand why Russia needs to build this Potemkin village. Why does this matter? Well, the vaccine trade is one of the most important in the world right now, right alongside the Fed trade and the the what-the-hell-happens-with-the-US-and-China trade. But just as it probably seems to you listening to this right now that this is a rushed and political decision first and foremost, so it seems to the market as well. The market is not exploding on excitement about this vaccine trial. They're basically kind of dismissing this as Putin doing Putin things and trying to kind of have a propaganda win. Ian Bremer of the Eurasia Group had this savage line. He tweeted, Russia's latest Sputnik moment, declaring victory by clearing an inadequately tested vaccine for public use, helps explain why the Soviet Union collapsed. Ouch. Last up on the brief today, the Hong Kong protests are taking a new financial form. Yesterday, we discussed the arrest of Apple Daily publisher Jimmy Lai, who, in addition to being one of the most outspoken pro-democracy advocates in Hong Kong, is also one of the area's biggest media tycoons. In the wake of the arrest, which targeted not only Lai, but his two sons and other executives from his media company Next Digital, the stock of Next Digital has surged as retail investors have piled in. The Next Digital stock has seen an 1,100% surge in two days, hitting a seven-year high. This has been organized by online forums, and overall, the market value of Next Digital has increased more than $335 million. Importantly, this is almost all retail, and there's really no other cause other than this coordinated effort happening, as I said, on online forums. In addition to piling into the stock, People have been increasing their buying behavior around Apple Daily Papers, which have increased printing to 550,000 copies today from 70,000 two weeks ago. Now, of course, this could all just be symbolic. I mean, ultimately, what does it accomplish to drive up the price of the stock other than perhaps to give Lai more resources to fight? But it wasn't exactly hurting on that front anyways. Instead, it seems like it's about the point of the symbolism, which has to do with the core value proposition of Hong Kong, which is as its role as a neutral financial center. In many ways, the biggest thing these protests threaten is that idea, but of course, the whole point is that what's really threatening that status is China's encroachment in general. These protesters are just a natural reaction to it. In that way, I think that this protest, which involves the stock market and which suggests that all of a sudden the stock market itself in Hong Kong is in fact subject to political forces, could be something that is very worrisome for many there. With that, let's shift our focus to our main conversation with Hugh Hendry. 
Hugh Hendry ran a hedge fund called Eclectica Asset Management from the early 2000s to 2017 and became known for first achieving a almost 32% positive return in 2008 as everything else was crashing, and second, of course, for his outspokenness. If you go check out his Wikipedia, there are two quotes on the top. One was this, he said, To my mind, the three most important principles when it comes to investing are Albert Camus' principles of ethics. God is dead, life is absurd, and there are no rules. Another quote was that when asked what defined a great fund manager, he said, quote, An ability to establish a contentious premise outside the existing belief system and have it go on and be adopted by the rest of the financial community. Those of you who have heard me talk about narratives as a battle of self-fulfilling prophecy might recognize something in that idea. After closing down his fund in 2017, Henry shifted his focus to building out properties in St. Bart, which he has called his, quote, volatility at the end of the world trade. A few months ago, though, he re-emerged on the macro scene in a big way. Now, I don't have too many chances to get philosophical around finance, so when I do, I take it. And I think what you'll see through this interview is that Hugh does not think like a lot of the people out there. We talk about everything from why he closed his fund down, to what he sees as the problems with the conventional wisdom now, to a very different take on where income inequality is really coming from right now. So I'm interested to see what you all think of this interview. I'm sure it will give you much to both shake your head in agreement with, as well as to scream at the speakers in disagreement. So that's kind of what I'm excited for, and I hope you enjoy it. As with all our long podcasts, this is edited only very briefly, but let's waste no more time and dive right in. All right, we are back with Hugh Hendry. Hugh, thanks so much for joining the show today. I'm really excited to chat with you. Uh, well, nice to be on. Um, you know, I, I'm sitting in the therapist's chair and I'm, <laughs> I'm ready to be diagnosed. Oh my God. Well, I don't know if we'll diagnose, but we'll certainly try to pull some things out of you, right? Um, so I, I think where I wanted to start, there, there's so much to dig into, but I, you know, as I was mentioning to you before, one of the things that's been really fascinating about your uh, kind of whirlwind reemergence onto the scene of the uh, the macro uh, brain set, or I don't know, whatever you want to call the, the place where we all discuss these things in, in, in public, is that I find that, you know, a, a lot of folks who are in this industry are, uh, they're, they're just Job, the way that they get paid is they're managing someone else's money. So they try to have their theses fully formed before they get public, right? And by the time they get to you, they're talking their book, whether whatever their book is, whether it's their investment or it's their uh, just the, their kind of their particular perspective. Whereas what I've noticed is you kind of really trying to absorb a huge amount of information, spit it back out and make sense of something. And I think it's coming off to a lot of folks as incredibly authentic because so many of us are also trying to absorb a lot of information and make sense of a world that feels like it's changing really quickly. But I think that, uh, you know, for, for our listeners or our, or our viewers, let's give the, the kind of the brief version of your, your history and, and how you got here from, you know, a, a hedge fund manager into sort of this very vocal figure that had a uh, kind of public shift in, in your perspective to, uh, to a very different volatility at the end of the world trade, as you put it, to kind of back to where you are now. Okay. The um, well, uh, um, let's see if I can do this short, so we can get to the kind of juicy things. But um, I, I guess I came from like in the American context, a kind of housing project, 
um, you know, really, really tough. Um, and my family didn't belong because we were perceived to be kind of on the make in terms of wanting wanting to get out, wanting to get very, very far away from that place. And and I think I want to say I suffered some form of non-physical trauma during that period, which kind of really kind of shaped and formed the kind of anthropologistic person I became that I have always been somewhat detached. I've never really retained, I've, I've had many deep, wonderful friends, but it's, they've been episodes and chapters of a life and we've continued to evolve. Um, I, I found that there was a, it, it would seem like there was a, an incredible fortuitous set of circumstances, which kind of was able to, to pluck me from that very difficult and challenging background. Albeit one could say that, that the harder you work, the kind of more fortuitous you become. But, you know, but definitely it felt like the, the, the <laughs> I, I don't really believe in God. God is there to overcome. <laughs> but it felt like definitely there was someone pulling strings. And so, yeah, if, um, I, I find myself with a prestigious, um, very proper company working in Edinburgh, very sort of academic and rigorous. Then I found myself in London with one of the original uh, European uh, long short hedge funds. And at all times, I was a troublemaker. I, I hear these damn voices in my head. You know, it's like uh, feeling the vibration on the on the rail track, and you know, there's a huge <laughs> locomotive coming. And in the early part of my career, I didn't really have the legitimacy for for people to stand aside. And so the train would approach closer and closer and I'd become more and more agitated. And kind of that's where the troublemaker part came because I'd be shouting, I'd be trying to you know, protect people. Um, I had a very fortuitous meeting with uh, um, an astonishing mind um, in London, a chap called Chris Benodi. And, and then he taught me some, like he taught me to misbehave. And it's that kind of misbehavior which forms curiosity, which allows you to kind of try decode whatever is out there uh, on, on the markets. And then from there, um, it's almost like the pattern recognition became almost like the way a musician would look at um, a sheet of music, you know, like a musical score. Um, and so again, I worked on that. But anyway, I, I got my own hedge fund and here I am, the boy from the housing project now has a, um, a glorious lifestyle in uh, the billionaire island. Um, in called St. Bart's in the French Caribbean. And so uh, you uh, packed up that hedge fund a few years ago and, and started to focus on this really uh, unique place. I actually want to come back to St. Bart's and talk about it a little bit because I think it's the, the way that you look at it is fascinating. But what was the genesis of, well, I guess, one, removing yourself from, from this world for a minute that you had occupied for, for a while at that point? And then two, how, how did you find your way back? Mm. Well, um, I don't, I, I've always, I'm passionate. I mean, I'm, I'm passionate about anything, trees or whatever, but I'm, 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 I vibrate. I drive my wife crazy, but I, I, I vibrate. I kind of need pills to calm me down. If I just get agitated, I vibrate. Um, but um, the business after 2000, at the end of 2012, I, I wrote a famous letter to my clients. Um, so, and I was kind of, borrowing a kind of iconic reference from what was my favorite show, Entourage. So, <laughs> Entourage, this, you know, kind of like the, supposedly the, the kind of life of Marky, Mar Marky B or whatever. Um, 
but um, in Hollywood. But there's a great line from a kind of a director who had had enjoyed great, great success, but many, many years ago. And the lack of recent success, of course, always eats away at your legitimacy. And so there's a great line. He was famous for kind of um, saying to anyone that would listen, what if I was to tell you this movie will cost us $40 million to make, we'll win three Oscars, we're going to cross $600 million. Is that something you would be interested in? You know, of course. Um, and so I, I, my conjecture was, what if I was to tell you I was turning bullish on equities? Is that something that you would be interested in? And, the, and I knew what the response would be. The response was a, a very emphatic no. And some newspapers and magazines of the time carried um, articles about the, the last bear turning bullish. Um, and the thing about that is today, <laughs> today, people still argue and dispute whether I was right. <laughs> I'm turning bullish in two, at the end of 2012 on the S&P and people still dispute whether I was right. Um, and so that conflict um, and, and that having found myself boxed in in terms of this perma bear and, and then even rejecting and not being allowed to reject it slowly but surely made my life uh, joyless and and I found myself losing clients and then the clients finally kind of just, I had not enough money to sustain the business, which was the end of 17. We had this enormous hurricane, the force of the hurricane Irma in the Caribbean. It passed directly. I, I mean, this is what I'm, I'm talking to you under like a 25 kilometer. It's a speck of dust in the ocean. And yet this hurricane, which was the size of the France. France is a big country, 65, 70 million people. The, the eye of the damn thing passed right over this island, profoundly devastating. Um, and in the same week, I lost a large client and, and the business came to an end. And so I spent, really, if you will, I entered confinement. Um, when everyone was forced into confinement in, in March of this year for this blasted virus, um, I, I re-emerged from my self-imposed confinement. So uh, this is actually super interesting and, and actually a little bit different of where I thought I was going to go right away. But, you know, I've heard you talk before in similar ways about even having uh, having kind of the, the financial press take something that you had said uh, about Bitcoin, right? And then turn it into a, a narrative position, right? That was that you were anchored to, that you were tethered to. How much do you think we maybe don't appreciate the way that the rise of social media and kind of the rapid transmission mechanism has forced people who are in finance into these slots, right? Like you're forced to be in one tribe or another represented by easy kind of Twitter soundbite-esque uh, positions that don't allow people to have kind of the full, uh, a full reflection and changing opinions because that would kind of lose them audience that they had gained. Yeah, well, with, with respect to financial managers, uh, people managing other people's money um, and those those other people being, if you will, institutional clients, there is so much kind of uh, risk checking. Um, so everyone needs a defined uh, nature of who you are, what you represent. And um, people, I, I want to say, they, they really enjoyed interviewing me, except at the end, because they had no notes. They were, I, I could, I'm a talker, you know, um, 
And the great problem was the kids who have to write these things up to and get them approved by the investment policy board. They were like, <laughs> I don't know. So, um, and I like, I, I used to joke that I used to dare people, you know, give your money to the guy who hears voices in his head, the paranoid schizophrenic. Uh, not, not a, not a, a viable marketing strong, uh, campaign, I would add. But you know, the, the, the need the simplicity of a definition is is something which it can and, and probably does haunt all professions, um, and I very much kind of re- rejected. I stood steadfast against it, um, but you you get chiseled, chiseled, chiseled down. You you make it, you know. But if you're not prepared to define who you are, then you are actually passing risk on to the person who has to make a decision and a judgment. So it's kind mm. of it's kind of past the hot potato. I was like, hey, listen, you know. You know, my argument was always if you wanted to reduce car deaths, put a huge dagger from the steering wheel, you'd be driving and you'd be looking this enormous, you know, and if you made a mistake, you would be impaled. Okay. I promise you that would, that would overnight, you would reduce probably by 80, 90% uh, fatalities from road accidents because people would drive down, down carefully. Um, And so people kind of, I was the reverse of that. I was like, hey, you take the, yeah, I was like putting, I was putting that, I wasn't the reverse. That's what I was in that equation. I was putting the, the, uh, the dagger very firmly in the steering wheel and saying, I dare you invest, you know, like I dare you to do the homework. I dare you to take risk, you know. Um, I like daring people, uh, but people don't like being dared, especially when it's not, when it's other people's money. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's, I mean, let's take it up to this here, you know, so there's a, there's a personal cadence for you coming back in, but there's also, you know, it sounded like uh, you were starting to try to uh, figure things out that, that, that were just not making sense to you or, or, or at least the, the kind of conventional wisdom that was flying around was insufficient. I mean, is that the case? You know, I mean, you've started to produce a, a lot of content, both this sort of conversational content, but also written content. But, you know, as you started to, to hear voices again, right, uh, in the context of this market, what, what were they talking about? What was the, the impetus specifically that you wanted to kind of have a stake in the conversation again. Mm. Well, the I so the I had an awakening. Um, I, I I think last Christmas I I was we always get a huge influx of very very successful people onto the island of St. Bars, and I was beginning to think like I was hearing myself in, in introductions of what my story was, and there's just more and more young folk in in finance and. You know, most of them hadn't heard of me, and I was just thinking I was becoming irrelevant, and my my great ego would not allow that. Um, and and so the hardest thing was to to challenge the inertia which had grown grown up around me in the last two years, and how I could kind of come back. I had absolutely no desire to manage other people's money, um, and so I kind of hit upon the idea of of doing a book um, of my kind of cranky. Uh, eclectic letters over the course of the last 15, 20 years. Um, but then I thought to myself that the better thing to do would be like a kind of this kind of podcast series with a very good transcript, which kind of would end up being the book in slow motion. And so I began analyzing my thought process back in 2002, 18 years ago. And the thing is, like, who cares? Like, who, who can, like, can you remember what the, the, the top, um, 
song was in the charts. Like no one, no one knows, no one cares. But the idea, the idea really was that I'm dealing with uncertainty, and I'm dealing with uncertainty kind of in an eccentric, cavalier, interesting manner. And you, either reading the transcript or watching or listening to the podcast, you kind of know what happens next. You know, and I'm saying, and so I press the red button. You're like, don't press, don't press the red button. Anyways, I, I embarked on. Um, on that exercise, and I began to recognize that all of the voices, which is to say all of the kind of chart setups, and then and the chart setups versus the narrative that I that, that people were sharing, like we had 20, I suddenly had 2020 vision, that 2020 just seemed to be the same setup, setup as 2002, and that back then I had conceived of a narrative which would have a dramatic third and final chapter where the true explosive move in kind of precious metals would take place. And so I suddenly thought, wow, you know, this was just meant, again, I said to you earlier on in my career, it felt like there's a fortuitous set of circumstances which was kind of leading and promoting me and, and taking care of me. Now it took, I have to say, it, it took eight years of me being very, very miserable before those, before that benevolent hand inter, intervened in my, in my career, my lifestyle. But the benevolent hand, I want to say, reappeared in sort of March, April of this year. And you hear me talk about, again, I like to, I like to have fun with words. Um, and, you know, people are very cruel. And, you know, they might, they're always, think, I'm, they're always thinking I'm a moron. And I'm always very quick to correct them that I'm an oxymoron. You know, I'm a, I'm a, for instance, I'm a contrarian trend follower. And, and I, I say that because it's very apropos the, the current situation. So I made money being a contrarian trend follower. Um, what does that mean? First of all, I never feared the consequences of being wrong. Okay. Secondly, I was looking for legitimacy. So anyone, anyone can have a narrative, but you're looking for a narrative which has the legitimacy of a supporting trend. And, and I find that it's actually the majority who, who act in a contrarian manner. So to put that in today's context, yes, people kind of gain and enjoying the, the gold and the silver move, and of course, Bitcoin and, and whatever else. Um, but for all of them, there's many people who would say that we, we saw this move in, in 2009, 2010, and, and then just it disappeared. Um, and then there's all the people who would, would discuss why it's happening and would be very, very critical of the monetary authorities. And he'll tell you that bonds are terrible and that the equity market's over expensive. Um, but all they're doing is, you know, the trend in all of these assets is very, very positive. And they're imposing um, an intellectual narrative and an imagined reality, which is very much at odds with the reality of the trend. So my, what I want, I guess the best way of summation is my imagined realities were always in keeping with the reality of the trend. And that kind of, that kept me out of trouble. But remarkably, it kept me contentious. And so I'm finding myself contentious again um, and reaching out uh, with Twitter. I, hey, who knew? It seems to be a, a shitty business, but as a platform, and you can just go, pow, you know, and like just take someone out. It's just amazing fun. And, and so 
if someone writes BS and they append uh, my my Twitter handle to it, more likely than not, I am going to visit you and I'm going to correct the errors in your commentary. So, How much of the, the 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 trend problems that you see are just about the wrong timescale, right? Trying to zoom in too far and construct a narrative from that uh, without kind of moving out with sufficient distance. Yeah, um, the that's certainly one of the skill sets. More is more is better. Yeah, the the number of times when people send you a chart and it's three months or three yeah three months or God forbid three weeks. Um, you know that that's like seeing a portrait of some fantastic battle scene, and you know you can't kind of work out where you are. You've just been shown three weeks. Um, I I, um, I love lots of data. And, and there are particular setups. And the thing that got me excited was um, I love the ebb and flow of nature as it comes through um, the, the, the kind of REM processing of millions of intelligent and otherwise people. Um, and so I, I like this notion of a, a bull market. And then, of course, a bull market is just the expectation of something which is yet to happen. And, and in some instances, it doesn't happen. And therefore, you have these profound bear market crashes. Um, and so this, then the brutality of prices falling 80 or 90%. And, and when that happens, typically there is no future. Um, but then you see, I love, I love seeing redemption. I love seeing a kind of 10 years of the share price no longer making lows. Or it doesn't have to be a share. It can be, a, it can be gold. It can be a currency. Um, and then it creating a very, very narrow um, base, if you will. And then out of the blue, it makes a 10-year high, which is to say it's still... 85%, it's still 75% below its all-time high, but it's actually just quadrupled in price in the last six months. And that's when my voices get very, very agitated. You can find, it's not guaranteed, of course, but um, I'm always fascinated by the process of redemption and that actually the future that was that people thought was going to happen 10 years ago might actually be happening now and no one cares about it. Those were always my, my favorite setups. So my fascination for gold back in 2002 was that it had that profound bear market. And if you put it, and I like relative price charts, you know, relative bear markets. So a devastating bear market versus uh, the S&P of the magnitude of 90%. And then no new lows. And in absolute terms, it does nothing. But of course, just the the sheer uh, devastation of the, the the bear market that began in late 1999 meant the relative price of gold started to kind of register something. And by the end of 2002, you could start. You know, there was a there was a lot of um, cont contention in my head from these shapes and patterns. And then my engagement with a you know a smart uh, group of young kids who would then question me. So that's how. That's how my kind of mind begins to start a process of, of, of discovery. And then I, I've always had like really smart young kids, much smarter than me, who go out and, and challenge my thesis. Um, and that's the synthesis of that work is kind of, of is what we've achieved over the years. What's going on, guys? I'm excited to share that one of this month's breakdown sponsors is Crypto.com. Crypto.com offers one of the most cost-efficient ways to purchase crypto out there. 
as they've just waived the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases. What's more, with Crypto.com's MCO Visa card, you can get up to 10% back on things like food and grocery shopping. When you buy gift cards with the Crypto.com app, you can get up to 20% back. Download the Crypto.com app today and enjoy these offers until the end of September. Bitstamp is the original global cryptocurrency exchange. Since 2011, Bitstamp has been the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors, trusted by over 4 million customers, including top financial institutions. Bitstamp is built on professional-grade trading technology. Their platform is powered by a NASDAQ matching engine, and their APIs are recognized as the best in the industry. Download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro. In this crisis, many investors aim to keep and grow their digital assets. Others seek to maximize the yield on their cash. Nexo allows you to achieve exactly these two goals. The company offers instant crypto credit lines against all major cryptocurrencies, with interest rates starting from only 5.9% APR. Nexo also lets you earn up to 10% annually on your fiat and digital assets. What's more, interest is paid out daily, and you can add or withdraw funds at any time. Get started at nexo.io. What is the redemption story that's interesting now? Or what are the redemption stories that are interesting now? The futures that people imagine that didn't come to pass, or perhaps the future that people are imagining now that doesn't seem likely to come to pass? Well, the remarkable aspect of today is it's kind of what's to, what's to stop it? What's to stop? You know, like as I say, I I kind of wrote at the end of 2012, which is you know, seven long years ago. Um, why can't we have a repeat of the last seven years? You know, I think the answer. I don't think there's anything economic, financial, um, in terms of the tenets of um, of the laws of economics and finance. I don't think there's anything that 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 would interfere or that would stop the next seven years being very similar to the last seven years. I think the most likely source, and of course it's conjecture, is really whether um, society will permit it. Um, and you know, there, are, there are red flags in that you know, uh, the UK, with the UK and Britain, of course, so I'm referring to, to the Brexit, the UK's uh, judgment to, to leave um, the continent um, is a kind of red flag. That's kind of people getting angry because the most logical thing would be to kind of stick with the status quo, that the kind of transaction cost of breaking that thing just kind of doesn't, it's not obvious that the, the upside is many times greater than the kind of transition cost. We will see, future will judge that. Um, but people decided to kind of, I don't, I don't care. You know what? You tell me about cost and you speak to me rationally. I'm angry. I don't care. This is going to happen. And it, it came to pass. There's clearly anger. Um, there's a degree of anger which has fueled Trump um, into his ascendancy. Um, and I'm kind of, you know, Trump is many things and it's, it's for others to kind of, uh, to, to impose morality. But um Trump represents a curious, you know, the, I, I, I seem to be a great 
lover of all things America, and, I, uh, and maybe I overdo it, but um, a, a liberal democracy pursuing curiosity and being playful is going to make mistakes. But the fact that it's it's reaching out to Trump is is a reflection that the totality of American society recognizes that today doesn't feel correct, that today needs, you said redemption, that today needs leadership and it, and it needs perhaps a different path and, and very much a different narrative. Now, it may be that liberal democracy in America got it wrong with Trump um, and it may get it wrong, wrong with Trump two, Trump three, but the fact that it's trying I think is ultimately going to prove its salvation. It will ultimately find redemption via that curiosity. And I don't really see that curiosity elsewhere. So yeah, you had tweeted at one point, I think in reply to someone else, for as long as we avoid the inevitable popular revolt, the status quo will deliver exponentially. And I think that's kind of what what you're referring to. But the interesting thing is that we we have this strange moment now where I think that you have narratives for both what went wrong and what we should do to fix it. That's really what the U.S. political debate is about, right? In, I think, the, you know, the, the 2016 Bernie versus Trump fight that so many people wanted, even though that's not ultimately what they got, it was two different stories about what went wrong uh, and two different ideas about how to change it and, and what might go right. And now I think it's a, a little bit different this time around, but there's certainly a, a kind of left-leaning and a right-leaning narrative battle on, you know, what feels wrong to the way that you put it, which I think is really right. Interestingly, however, both sides seem to be getting comfortable with somewhat similar economic policies, at least as it relates to individual citizens, right? Which is the, you know, the the debate, for example, right now between the Republicans and the Democrats is not, should there be stimulus or not, which it might have been 10, 20 years ago. It's, does the package look closer to 1 trillion or 3 trillion for this go around, right? Which is a remarkable shift. And so I guess, that, you know, bringing the, the financial side back into this is, has actually that the the ground upon which we stand in some ways shifted irrevocably. We just don't see it yet. Well, it, it, it shifted. And I think it has shifted irrevocably in the world. Um, and this is contentious to say, but in the, in the world of central bank policymaking, which kind of ultimately, you know, can, can shape. I mean, they, they actually, they, by making them independent, they, they gave them the superpower that they could kind of do whatever they want. And, and of course, I guess with the caveat that if they truly screw it up, they'll get reined in and they'll be punished by losing their independence. Um, I want to say that, um, again, in terms of what is the check on the exponential nature of I was going to call it prosperity or on the on the, the the asset price speculation kind of ascendancy. What is the break? Because the break used to be ideology. It used to be the ideology of the people who ran banks, and that ideology kind of it, it was still there and evident. It stays still there, but you know the the, the Federal Reserve raising interest rates and um, brought down the housing market um, and, and, and created a, an, an almighty. Um, the Federal Reserve beginning to raise rates, I think, from when did they start raising rates? Like preempt a little, just tiny. Did they do something in 2014 or 17? Anyway, in my mind, who cares? Um, 
the, the, the desire to be seen to be um, doing things right, you know, they, they, they can't really come out just now and endorse that the, the natural rate of interest is either, is either zero or negative. I mean, some of the, the, the local Fed presidents are kind of writing to that, that end. They're kind of trapped just now by the notion that they can't go like really negative with, with interest rates. And there's a huge consensus that negative interest rates do not work, but we've only tried like negative, we've only tried negative interest rates and they've been defined by basis points and not percentage points. So I'm very curious about, I, I could see this moving from basis points to percentage points. Um, but I kind of want to say that at the end of the 1920s, it was a hard money ideology, the kind of Andrew Mellon, and purging the system um, of its rottenness of its complacency sounds noble. It is noble, and and there are kind of strict kind of economic doctrines that could push you that way. But you are sacrificing ordinary people, and that and when you had Bernanke, many many de- decades later, when he was uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve in the noughties, and when he stood up, I think on the was it the ninetieth birthday of Milton Friedman. And he, and he apologized on behalf of the Fed for that decision, which created at least 10 years of, of, of depression. And, and all, all the, the dramatic kind of awful emotional things that that did on families. That I want to say has, has gone. Um, and that's not really being embraced. That the, the, the people, the most vociferous critics of central banks today are ideologues and they want they want to raise interest rates. They, they tell you that the, they tell you that the Fed has manipulated everything. That is just that is an imagined reality. Now I can't tell you if it's a true imagined reality. But my suspicion is that is not a, a true uh, reality. The, the price reflects this this extraordinary world. Like where should ten year rates trade? Where is American GDP going to? Where, what where are they going to print for the year? It's going to be what somewhere between minus seven and minus 12, or at least minus 12. It's going to be an unprecedentedly grim number. And people tell you that the Fed's manipulated market rates. I'm like, should they trade at 3%, 4%, 5%? What's wrong with 50 basis points? So you have zealots, and they want to impose something which is not market-based. And if they impose, thankfully, the central bank's not listening. Because if they imposed it, it would, it would incur it would just it would just destroy families and, and life's I don't care. I mean I don't I don't care about ideology. Let's not destroy families. So this is really interesting. And this is another thing that I wanted to ask you about because there was a period after that, after 2008, right? Which is, you know, you had spent time watching this almost, it feels like it, you were watching it unfold in, in slow motion in some ways where you had that anger, you had that frustration. In fact, you, speaking of being pigeonholed for it, right? For a time you were, that's why it was so surprising to people when you kind of shifted your perspective in 2012. How did you, uh, how did you start to, uh, what shifted your perspective, I guess? And in particular, you know, one of the big questions right now is exactly to your point, the question about income inequality and, uh, and kind of the, the growth in asset prices versus, uh, versus wages and people's ability to participate. I mean, how, how does that fit into, I know it's something that you care deeply about. How does that fit into the, your understanding of the role of central banks? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, so thanks for bringing that up because, you know, um, 
I, I had to de- deliver a mea culpa. I had to say, forgive me. That ever since, you know, so I, I, I made a nice profit. I made 50% in the month of October 2008. And so for the year, I think the figure was about 32% positive. You know? and, and I expected that we would get this. I, I was Andrew Mellon. Hey, let's purge the rottenness. All these complacent people who got away. Um, and, and so I think three years later, I, my mere culpa was, you know, I'm there to manage your money, not to be your moral compass. And so what, directly to your question, what changed? What changed was still the, the discipline. Remember, I always sought legitimacy from the market itself. And I found that I was breaking my golden rule. I was, dis- I was going against the prevailing trend, which was absurd. Now, you're allowed to do that for brief little periods. It's very, like, we have red lights flashing whenever I do that. And it's like, you've got a half-life of hours, you know, but this is unsustainable, this is unsustainable. And I, I give myself no more than three years. Three years is, is Jesus, it's a lifetime in, the, in, in terms of the world of managing a leveraged macro portfolio. And so for three years, I had very much extinguished all of the goodwill that I'd achieved in 2008. And don't get me wrong, I didn't lose money. I just didn't make money when it was so damn easy to make money. And I was really, really annoyed at myself. And so the, the kind of three-year time window and the fact that, hey, someone takes you out. I, I had someone that takes me out. Um, and and therefore I, I, had to, I had to search for another way. You've seen that. You've, you've seen that since 2015. A lot of macro people telling you that the Chinese currency is going to collapse versus the dollar. Um, it may eventually, but I could see I, back then and today, I don't see any reason that, that would support that. Um, that was, there are people who've been arguing that case for five years. They're still launching products today. Those products are very, very leveraged. They're very simple option products. And they say to people, just give me, just give me 1% of your wealth. They're guaranteed to, to, to destroy 1% of your wealth. So uh, <laughs> narratives need to be disciplined by the passage of time. And that, that time, sorry, that, that message, that kind of, um, uh, what I want to say, grumpy kind of moralistic kind of uh, uh, curmudgeon was timed out at the end of 2012. So that's, that's part one of the question, I guess. But then part two has to do with the 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 income inequality are do you think that the folks who think that income inequality is has been exacerbated by uh asset price growth uh are are they off is that are that missing the mark i i i think there is greater fear about upsetting savers and like these, you know, these like really, really low rates that you get, and of course, people retiring and and, and searching for an, an annuity and finding that the income that the annuity provides is is not enough for life. I think there's kind of more policymaker angst about that subject rather than the disparity uh, in incomes, um, and that that bothers me. Um, the a lot of the disparity. I think is emerging from um, there seems to be a flaw in the capitalist system today, which is that too many important actors, and this is kind of part of the Trump 
kind of trade policy, but you know, let's call it principally Germany representing Europe um, and China um, have been using the US as the consumer of last resort, which is to say that um, those countries um, are just saving too much. Um, and the consequences of that, if that first came to, came to our consciousness because they had so much savings that they were, and they were so determined to put it into America that we had the kind of cheats and liar um, loans to ordinary house, like ordinary households were being enticed to take on loans, you know, uh, with teaser rates, which would trap them. And then they would, they would turn viciously. And then you'd go through all the, 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 the trauma of losing houses, et cetera, was coming from this, mercantilist trade policy that we see in Europe and China, that has to change. You know, that has to change. They, um, they have to pay people more money in, in China. Uh, they've got to have a, a stronger currency in China. They've got to kind of um, let some of these state-owned enterprises disappear because like ordinary folk are being suppressed. That the, the heel was crushing them to keep afloat these monolithic, stupid companies. Um, the, you know, the U.S. is making mistakes as well. I mean, the, again, I, I, in my head, I'm kind of playing around. I've got a trade in my head. Um, um, but I, I don't think we've seen the last about this story about negative interest rates. And I think if I wish to be provocative and look to the future, I think we will see negative interest rates globally. Um, and I think they will have handles of one, two, three percentage points negative, and that will be punishment to that generation of savers. I think we were talking in the intro about how I can bookend, I can bookend a fifty-year period from the nineteen seventies to, to to today, where we kind of we pivoted from chaos to order, and the imposition of order into our um, economy. Uh, was a, an immense boon to the creditor um, part of the economy. And, and it, we're at the end of that thing, it's going to change. And we've got to work out how it, it becomes, very, it, how the system works for the debtor. The debtors, the debtors are the people with ideas. The, 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 you know, the, the Steve Jobs things about the, the square pegs and round, and round holes. We're kind of scared of them. They kind of smell. They look a bit kind of fruity. Um, but they're the people that could change the world. And they need your help. And they need your money. Um, and the, the problem with the exchange, the exchange of ideas for money or money for ideas, was that the the creditors were being overpaid, over rewarded for that decision. That that is slowly changing. I think it will accelerate. And I think again, the notion of redemption may lie. It may lie in, in that in that route. But that's I mean that's that's me sitting here kind of just with conjecture for the moment. Uh, all of us are sitting here with conjecture. It's just we all kind of play a different uh, play a different role in how how much we're willing to stand by that conjecture. But this is, I mean, this is part of why I wanted to to have you on the show is that I know that a lot of the folks who will be listening to this have a different take on where this yeah. income inequality came from. But what what interests me is when people have a similar diagnosis of problems or a similar recognition of problems and different diagnosis of both cause and potential solution because. 
all of a sudden, if you're debating that, you're in such better territory than just screaming at each other about what's, you know, what, what's, what's kind of wrong. And I think we missed that. So I, I just want to expand on this just to, for, for a moment. It sounds like, and this kind of got, I think, also to the, to the heart of your conversation with, uh, with Luke Grauman on, uh, on Real Vision, how much the real culprit here is the structural imbalance between the U.S. and the rest of the world. And the kind of the, 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 how much got pinned on basically the, the backs of the American worker, the average American family in structuring the, the system that it became. And when you talk about savings, you're not just talking about kind of the average family who, who wants to save some money for, you know, a, a vacation or a, you know, a rainy day fund. You're talking about kind of globally the, the savings imbalance between the U.S. and everyone else. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. There's so much there, so you're correct. Let me see if I can take these back in order. When people do disagree, like what I was saying is we'd have many people shouting at the their iPhone or, or what have you. Um, those people offer an alternative solution, which is that interest rates are too low. They should go up. <laughs> you're going to get a huge amount of savings from that because people are going to lose their jobs and they're going to be forced to save because they've got no money coming in. So if you're trying to solve income disparity, uh, raising interest rates is a catastrophic idea, in my, in my low opinion. Um, I go on in my tweets about the benevolence of a, a global hegemon called the United States. And I, I dare the naysayers to, to rerun the last 100 years without the role of the US. Um, Obviously, we've had global wars, etc. But I think it's never happened in history that you had a nation, a sovereign nation, that was willing to forego or to take on the hardship um, of the displacement of people losing, of communities losing their their job. You know, there there was a huge displacement. There's a huge displacement that happens when you bring the other half of the world on stream online. They, they kind of conceivably are as deserving of a, of a proper lifestyle as, as, as all of us, but there are consequences as we bring them online that they, they enjoy comparative advantages to do things kind of not necessarily smarter, but more productively than, than you could do perhaps in the U.S. And the U.S., I think, stands alone in having the, the foresight to recognize it would be kind of better to take that pain today in the expectation of sharing that prosperity and having very rich neighbors and in the future that you're very much, the pie is much, much bigger than the alternative path of denying that. Now, where we run into trouble is that that happened, you know, the, the 70s and, you know, Martin Scorsese movies, the deer hunter and stuff just was showing you the raw edge of the displacement of steel workers and, and what have you. Um, and this is kind of payback period, you know, because the U.S. is kind of has the ambition. Sorry, the, the Chinese had the ambition to be the size, if not the, the, the greater size of the American economy. But I, I still feel that they're kind of backsliding on the promise. It's like, guys, we took the hit. You know, families lost jobs. They lost homes. They lost education. They had to move. We took the hit. And we took it to make you richer. And so now you should be investing because you're rich and you should be doing stuff. Like your people should be a lot richer and they should be buying our stuff. And the Chinese, but the Chinese are behaving as if they've still got a country of peasants and they need more and more, like the US to, to impose more and more hardship on us ordinary folk. And it's like, guys, we're, we're done with that. You know, wake up. 
and, and and change your model, right? You know, you know, you have got an amazing infrastructure, right? Done, right? But you've got lots of shitty companies. Get rid of, them, right? Let the currency rise and let the people get richer. So that's a that's a debate that's going on there. The other debate, which is, let me criticize the U.S. and other Western nations, is there seems to be that grotesque order of ideology, which seems to deny us a world-class infrastructure. It seems that you can raise money for, you don't even have to, you don't even have to tell people what the project is. You, you call it, it's a secret, but I'm a kind of, I'm a money maker and I need a billion dollars. Done. But you stand up and you say, like the US has the shittiest infrastructure in the world and yet we're the kind of the best nation on, on earth. These things don't kind of, they don't go together. Give me, obviously don't give me a billion dollars, give me, you're know, talking trillions these days. Give me, give me three trillion, give me five trillion, yeah. And, and yet, people deny it. That's, that's not, not, not going to happen. Why? Why? I don't understand. There seems to be a deep, deep ideology that is so suspicious. We, we've got to like, like the 50s, I don't care, like rebuild the damn roads, like get fast, fast. You, you've got Tesla there and his, his um his tunnel thing. Let's get these things moving. Let, you know, let's get internet like really fast everywhere. Let's spend money. And yet people won't do that. That drives me crazy. Well, I think what's so fascinating about this and that where you're coming on, and you know, I think that a lot of this is hinted at maybe in the the Dawn of Chaos, which you wrote, but I think is you could go even further with is that be I wonder if actually by framing this big secular shift that we're living through strictly in the context of financial flows rather than bringing in the geopolitical rather than marrying those two sides we're actually missing something for either of them you know so I've had Peter Zayan who wrote Disunited Nations on the show before it's a great book about the kind of 30-year American withdrawal from the system but the interesting thing is that what you what your what you add to his perspective and analysis is is uh, is this idea that there is some natural evolution of what is supposed to happen next based on what the U.S. thought it was buying with its kind of bringing everyone into this world order. And if that isn't happening, that's a geopolitical issue as well, not just a financial issue that's going to have consequences. And we might be looking at mostly the trees rather than the forest, right? Individual trade war with Trump. The fact that China is now, you know, 73% of Americans have an unfavorable view of China. It's the highest ever. It's popular on both sides. To, to These might be larger structural issues about a need to rebalance. And I think to your point, there is an at-home piece of this, which I think the, the, the virus has exposed, right? Even the conversation that we're having now, right? The the $765 million loan debacle to Kodak. Really, you know, I, I think that that's the, that's the leading indicator of a lot of things that are going to happen as we try to reshore, you know, quote unquote, or whatever term you want to use. But it feels like we're very much at the beginning of uh, of a new sort of Marshall Plan-y era for, for back home. And in some ways, I wonder how much the question is to what extent we view that that uh, strictly in terms of these kind of one-off programs, like, you know, uh, another extension of stimulus support or debates about MMT and UBI versus a, a, a structural shift in how we think about the need to actually rebuild kind of, a, of America in a, in a different context. Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> well, thought more thought more than a question, right? Of course. But. Yeah, indeed. No, I mean the there's there's just so much there's so much in that. Um, but the you know the one of the points from the the, the dawn of chaos was challenge. I guess challenging is not the right word. Inflation is a monetary phenomenon. It's a fact, but it kind of it, it ignores that it is actually a. That there are other phenomena which kind of have to, you know, there's a kind of chain reaction, and another phenomenon has to take place first. Um, and that other phenomenon is, is in this kind of soft and tangible world of um, uh, the psychology of you and I. And you know, I, I what I try to do is I try to you know the the German economy suffered this catastrophic at the time catastrophic uh, hyperinflation. These events have. have Remarkably rare in, in kind of in grown-up, civilized, developed economies, and and, and it happened. You know, Germany was kind of like playing the role of China to the UK, being being the US. It, you know, the uh, the UK had uh, had the Industrial Revolution probably over the course of the 50, 60, 70 years. The Germans did it in ten years, as you know, as, as the, the baton has passed on. Um, but with the um, the and so they, they were destroyed by this hyperinflation, but the hyperinflation really was a, a function of, of anger. It, it, the the Allies, having having won the First World War, insisted on basically gold was their uh, foreign exchange reserves that you hold to protect the integrity of the nation, to to make it trustworthy to to foreign creditors, and the Allies demanded the transfer of all of that, that gold bounty. And one by one, it just made a divided nation very, very angry. And, and they turned in on themselves. And they started like shooting politicians. And this the shooting thing happened in, in Japan. They were, would you believe, they were killing the Bank of Japan. Yeah. And, and you, wonder, you wonder why the Bank of Japan is very, very nervous <laughs> in doing anything. They're like looking behind themselves all the time. So it's, it's easy to, to say inflation is a monetary phenomenon. And at the end, it, it, it gets printed and it moves. And, you know, you could carry a trillion dollars on your mobile phone, you know, digitally. You know, so, you know, the next transmission mechanism could really just, the, the ground is parched and it could really go. The hard thing is getting it to the point where people are so angry. But, but again, the U.S. and it, and the so there are divisions. Everyone recognizes the divisions just seems to have accelerated in terms of the the, the two tribes just now in, in the U.S. The even the virus seems to expose two tribes, and um, and there's something remarkable going on with the little comment, which is that. Um, volatility, you know, this kind of the expectation of the, the daily ups and downs and the swings in, in, in fluctuations of, of risk asset prices um, has remained elevated vis-a-vis the record of the last seven or eight years. So it's kind of, there's a, there's a, there is definitely a voice in my head saying, watch that because that's really strange, especially given this dramatic recovery in asset prices, volatility to remain as elevated as it is, the market's kind of yet to process. And what is, of course, is volatility has been anchored around the uh, the election month of uh, November. Um, and so people, you know, the, the big the big fear is is really more that if if Trump if if Trump loses, that's that's the huge volatility event. 
because the question is how, how he deals with it um, and, and how his tribe deals with it. And I think his tribe is perhaps more, uh, what is the term, noisy. Uh, than than liberal, you know, they're, they're kind of liberal. Liberals are just they, you know, they'll write opinion pieces to the Washington Post, etc. But they'll kind of you know drink coffee and get on with it. Whereas it's the other the other guys that that's the concern. So there's you know we Germany was a divided nation after the First World War. Um, the rest of the world kind of was very very mean. And, and took it down a peg, humbled it, and humbled it, and kept humbling it, and then society turned it on itself. And so we just have to watch this tribal thing and the manifestation of that around the elections this year. I'm sure it'll be fine, but, you know, it's no risk factor. So uh, I, I've kept you for a while. I could, I could keep you here for like three hours, but I want to respect your time. And so maybe let's do this by, by way of wrapping up. Um, instead of trying to sort of explain in full the thesis that you uh, have in the dawn of chaos about what, what could help us out of this, right? And, and what we need, uh, let's preview it, right? Let's preview what the, the, the sort of, you have this contrarian a little bit perspective on what it would actually take to get the, the kind of engine up and running in a way that would make sense. That's certainly not a return to the gold standard or, or something like that. So uh, maybe, maybe let's preview that with a with a promise that to the to the listeners that I'll try to have you back on soon and we can dive kind of deeper into uh, into some of the, the financial stuff from from where we were today. Okay, so well, well, thank you very much, everyone, for, for your patience and lasting this long. These things are, um, you know, the, the challenge is to is to to find uh, brevity um, and and actually hit the points you wish to make. Um, I think my parting shot would be that um, the system, um, if fully operated. The monetary system, if fully operated, um, could be the source of um, a lot of solutions, but of course, also a lot of um, um, potential trap falls in terms of it. You know, we we can find a solution, but we have to kind of make sure that that solution involves the many and not the few. Okay, um, I want to say that um, there's been an ideology and a conservatism in the way that central banks operate. It's almost, we impose that upon them. That it would make sense that we would impose that upon them. Um, I want to say that the central banks have been doing this thing called quantitative easing. They, and, and they become a little bit brazen. Like, uh, you had uh, Jeremy G. Powell on um, um, American TV, and he's, they never say this, but he's saying, yeah, we're printing money. Oh, I, and we'll print a lot more money. I mean, that's not Fed speak typically. But there does seem to be that the heart's not truly in it. And this QE process, the, the, the expansion of inert bank reserves, it, it fooled a lot of people at the beginning. But, you know, it's not fooling that many people. Now, New Japan started this in 2001. And they're on the 27th version. How many times can you bend a duck, you know, and give it another name? It still quacks. You can call it what you want. This thing quacks. It doesn't work. And, the, and, and what I was hinting at, or the market is hinting at in the dawn of chaos is, so tell me again, I, I make dollars plentiful. Like I massively increase the spigot. You know, I just pump dollars into my economy. And therefore, isn't the the consequence of that would be that the price of a marginal dollar unit would fall. But the weird thing is that since you've been doing this, each marginal dollar that you produce is becoming more precious and more valuable. So 
you're just making this up. You're not doing it. Your heart's not in it. There's still an ideology that's holding you back. Yeah. And so um, they've jettisoned a lot of ideology, but I kind of reason that perhaps the central bank just, we're asking an impossible thing. We're asking it to be um, um, very, very irresponsible, like really, really irresponsible. And these guys were not made to be irresponsible. Put me in charge, or like, like I said, put uh, Joe Rogan, someone like a, a, you know, a caricature. I'm not being tough on Joe. The Joe would be fun, but it's like it's a game of psychology, and you could really challenge it and create. If you can change behavior, you can change history. Yeah, if you can get in people's minds and make them think differently, you change history. And that's the next step. Well, let's leave on that provocative note. I know people are going to be screaming at the at their earbuds for more, uh, or to yell at me for not digging into Bitcoin with you, or at you for not explaining further. But that's we'll, uh, it's what repeat invites are for. So, Hugh, thanks so much for hanging out. Is really really fun, and I think uh, really important big questions that that we are uh, discussing here today, and I think we all need to be asking. Thank you very much, Nathaniel. I, I fear that some of my responses I'm going to be like, re, re-hearing them in my head later on going, oh my God, I'm such an idiot. So apologies to everyone, but thank you very much. <laughs> Reflecting on that conversation, the thing that I keep marinating on and that I really want to explore more is this alternative take on what the core problem in the current system is. And At the risk of putting words in Hugh's mouth, and I I tried to pull this out or tease this out a little bit during our conversation, I'm fascinated by this notion that the root problem may be too long spent by the American system to bring the rest of the world up and into a global American-led order, as opposed to advocating for and designing for specifically American interests domestically. In other words, while it was a good idea to create a mechanism by which the whole world could be part of this larger American-led capitalist system, the net impact and long-term fallout may be over-calibrated away from American gain and to the gain of everyone else. That's sort of what he was talking about with prioritizing savers around the world. He's not talking about savers in America and how we focus too much on savers here, he's talking about the global savings glut and what it actually means for Americans back home. There's a lot more to explore in this idea, and it's something I want to come back to, but for now, I'm really interested in what you guys think. I imagine that there will be a lot of feedback on this episode, so hit me up at NLW on Twitter, let me know what you think, tag Hugh in it, I'm sure he will respond and engage, and Hopefully we'll have him back again to go deeper on some of these ideas. But for now, guys, I hope you enjoyed this. And until tomorrow, be safe and take care of each other. Peace.